I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Good morning and welcome back to Practical Stoicism, my dear Prokoptan. Today is Wednesday, which means we have a long form discussion version of the podcast. And this week it is with Brittany Polat. If you don't know who Brittany Polat is, I don't believe you, because if you know who I am, you must know who Brittany is, because Brittany does so much work in this space. As I discovered in this 60-minute conversation, that I find it hard to believe anyone would know who I was and didn't know who she was. Brittany has a PhD in linguistics. She is a steering committee member of Modern Stoicism. She's on the board of the Stoic Fellowship, which is a nonprofit you may have heard of. She's the co-founder of Stoicare, which is another nonprofit. She's the co-organizer of Stoicon Women. And she is the author of, among other books, Journal Like a Stoic, which is mostly what we will be talking about in the upcoming discussion. The reason I invited Brittany onto the podcast is because she's prolific, both in terms of writing, she has three books, and in terms of participation and organization and leadership in the Stoicism community. She is really someone you need to know. And there was another reason. I was a little selfish to meet her. Hey, I'm a content creator. I want to meet other people who are doing good stuff out here in the Stoicism community. So I wanted to meet her, and I have a podcast. I get to do that now, I guess. I get to meet cool people, and I get to help you get familiar with cool people. And I can tell you for certain, after 60 minutes of conversing with Brittany, that not only is she a prolific writer and prolific in her participation in the Stoic community, but she's also super cool. So you'll be glad to meet her. I won't say more than that. I will just get right into the conversation. So here it is, my conversation with Brittany Polat. Brittany Polat, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing super. I am actually quite excited to talk to you because we have just launched a journaling program for practical stoicism. And then I came across your book and I was like, oh, geez, I hope we even did half this good. Your book is really good. Oh, thank you. Uh, and we're going to spend time talking about it. But I think I want to start the way we start all these episodes by asking a little bit about you. And we'll start with where you're from and how you grew up. Sure. Well, I can't say it's very interesting. I had a pretty typical suburban childhood outside of Atlanta, Georgia. So I grew up, I didn't have any career aspirations or anything like that. So the only thing I wanted to do was to live in Europe. I wanted to get out of the suburbs and <laughs> I managed to do that. I lived in multiple different countries throughout Europe. I found it was a little bit too cold for me over there and ended up coming back to the U.S., but not, nothing too special, just a typical childhood. What was the draw to Europe? Was it just, uh, did you feel confined by your suburban upbringing? You're like, I got to get out of here. There's got to be more to the world than this. Yeah, yeah, kind of like that. You know, the suburbs, I wouldn't say are beautiful in a lot of ways. You know, the urban sprawl kind of thing. And I was always longing for the art and the culture and, you know, some kind of connection, I think, to, I think even at that time, I was kind of looking for a connection to something bigger than just, you know, consumerism or the things that we typically associate with, with the suburbs. And I live in the suburbs now, so I came back to it. It's not as if you can't live a good life there. You can live a good life anywhere, right? As Marcus Aurelius points out. But that was just kind of my path over, over there and then back to, to the United States. 
You know, that's a piece of advice I've heard a lot in my life because I've never been to Europe. I'm in the process of relocating to Portugal in the next few months. And I have this fear that I think you just validated, which is it's not going to be any different there. It's going to be, you know, pretty much the same as far as if you're not happy here, you're not going to be able to be happy somewhere else just because the geography is different. Yeah, you know, that is a lesson I learned because I kept I kept moving. So I lived in beautiful places. I lived in Paris. I lived in Vienna. I lived in Istanbul. And at the time, you know, this was a long time ago. I was in college. So I've learned a lot since then. But at the time, I just had the feeling that the external environment would provide my happiness. And of course, in the intervening years, I've learned that is not the case. It's your internal environment that creates your happiness, right? It doesn't matter where you are. So you know, I still love Europe. I still go back and travel there, but I don't have the same expectation from my surroundings that I once did. So, but I hope you have lots of happiness there. I'm sure Portugal will be awesome. I think I'll show up and I'll say, wait, I guess I'm the drama. That's what I'll figure out. <laughs> well, so was that experience for you traveling Europe and maybe eventually coming to that realization? Is that what brought you to stoicism? Oh, this is an internal thing. That's what I have to focus on. Was it immediately obvious that stoicism was the answer or did you, like many, kind of stumble across it and say, oh, wait a minute, what's this? No, that came many years later. So after I moved back to the United States, you know, I got married, had kids, pursued a career. I did a, a PhD in applied linguistics. And it was really at the point when I had my children and my two worlds collided. You know, my at that point, I had career ambitions in applied linguistics and the realization that I couldn't match those up with the kind of parent that I wanted to be. And at the same time, just realizing that I needed some kind of navigation system for being a parent in the world and being a person in the world, right? But, but when you have kids, it all kind of just comes crashing down reality, right? You realize that maybe the things that you've valued up to then are not going to carry you through through. Once you have kids, you need some kind of consistent and firm value system that you can share with them that can help you navigate all the difficulties of suddenly having to take care of another person who's extremely dependent on you. So it all just came crashing down. I was at a point where we had moved to a new town. I didn't have any family or friends, you know, no support. I was going through this career change. I had three young kids, very highly energetic. And I, I just, I needed something. I needed some kind of guidance. So I actually, one day I just went on Amazon and typed in wisdom into the search box. <laughs> and one of the books that came up was William Irvin's A Guide to the Good Life. And the subtitle of that book is The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy, which I found very intriguing. So I clicked, you know, one thing led to another. I bought the book, loved it, and then just kept ordering more books on stoicism and just went deeper and deeper and found that it was making my life a lot better. It was making me a better person when I went through, you know, the practical exercises and adjusting my mindset and all of these things. So that's how I ended up a stoic. What I find the most interesting about that answer is, and pardon me for saying this because it's obvious, but you're a woman and it can often seem that stoicism feels to women, I I've heard this, this is the feedback that I get, as very not inviting. But you didn't even hit that hurdle. You found this great book by Irving, jumped right into it, and kind of ran with it. Do you think maybe that idea that stoicism is not inviting to women in the way it's presented in the wider world is less true than maybe myself and others think it is? I think it is true to an extent. Uh, this is something that's come up a lot. As you may know, I'm involved with the Stoicon Women Conference with my co-host, Catherine Coramulis. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot with other women. So there's nothing inherent in the philosophy itself that would be unfriendly to women. The philosophy itself applies to every human being. And so this is something that I really connect with is this universalism. The Stoics, even the ancient Stoics, as you know, they were into cosmopolitanism and applying the same principles of virtue and justice to everyone. Of course, we can fault their application of that in their ancient context. And today we're much more aware of some of the issues surrounding that. But within the philosophy itself, there's nothing inherently you know, unfriendly to women. What you do see applied in the popular culture is there are some you know, aspects that seem to be very male-centric, which I think are just accretions. They're just added on. They're external to the philosophy, but they are part of how the philosophy is sometimes presented. So I'm thinking of those corners of the internet that are very you know, macho or, or things like that. So there are these extra accretions added on that can be unfriendly to women. But once you peel those away, stoicism is awesome for everyone. So this is what we try to really bring out and show in our work with women and stoicom women and this kind of thing, that it's a philosophy for everyone. Every single person can benefit from stoicism. Well, I don't know if it was your intention, 
Maybe it wasn't, but I feel that you've really done that well in your book, Journal Like a Stoic, the one that we're going to be talking about today. Was that intentional? Because that book did not feel, it didn't even make a statement on gender at all. And it felt very accessible to me. My girlfriend's been using it. She hasn't said anything as if, oh, this feels very hyper-masculine or anything. I mean, it feels like a really great treatment of the concept of journaling and of an introduction to Stoicism because you don't need to be a Stoic to use this book. You can be completely unfamiliar with the philosophy entirely. Absolutely. Yeah, it certainly was you know, it wasn't my top goal because I try to be approachable to everyone. So my main goal in all of my materials is to be inclusive for everyone, kind of just like I was just pointing out, stoicism is a philosophy for everyone. So that's the point of view that I bring to all of my work, whether it's this book or with Stoic Care or with my modern stoicism work. So I think that is what comes across is that universal aspect in in this book and in other things. So that is what I hope people will pick up on. So thank you for that. Yeah, of course. I mean, deserved. Can you introduce me to the conceptualization purpose and coming together of this book? Because it's not the first book you've published in the space. I think it's the most recent book you've published in the space. So what got you from, you know, being the mom, the wife and the individual who was struggling and looking for something, finding stoicism to getting to this masterful implementation of the practice of journaling? I mean, it is really good. And I'm not trying to hype you up, but it's very good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, obviously, it's been a journey. We all have our own journey that we go through. So after I first discovered Stoicism and just read everything I could get my hands on, I started a blog. So that was probably 2017. And at that point, I realized, you know, I just wanted to share it with other people. It had been so powerful for me and so life-changing. You know, you just want to, you're just like, oh, why has nobody told me about this before? Why do people not know about this? And so I wanted to share it with as many people as possible. So I started doing that in the context of parenting. And I, I wrote a book called Tranquility Parenting, where I do take a very stoic perspective on raising children, dealing with challenges as a parent, teaching your kids virtue, this kind of thing. And from there, you know, I've just been very active in the Stoic community, trying to share it with as many people as possible through various organizations. And, you know, one thing led to another. This book actually came about, um, I was approached by the publisher, Penguin Random House. It's a, a branch of Penguin Random House called Zeitgeist. And they said, we think there's an opportunity here for a journal or a journaling program, and we need someone to fill in the gaps. So they found me and I was delighted to accept so that's kind of the the conception of the book. Oh, wow. So you came with just a general overview of the idea and they said, oh, that sounds great. Let's do it. They had the idea of a stoicism journal and they were looking for someone to write it for them, basically. But I was at first I was a little bit hesitant because there is a lot of misinformation out there about stoicism, as I'm sure you know, all these misconceptions of what stoicism is. So I was very careful getting involved in the project. You know, I thoroughly reviewed the idea that they had of stoicism, what they wanted me to present. And I felt like it was aligned with with my view of stoicism as well. So after I accepted, then I was able to kind of present my viewpoint as well. So just so your listeners know a little bit about the structure, it is a 90-day program and it's set up as three 30-day courses. So each course has a different focus. For example, the first one is examining the inner critic. So we're kind of looking at those assumptions that you might be bringing into the program of, you know, your sense of self-worth or your values in life, that kind of thing. Re-examining those, trying to find the truth, you know, peeling back all those layers that you've added on over the years and getting back to the kernel of the truth of who you are. So for example, that was the first program. I'm very happy with how it turned out, but it was definitely a, a team effort. It it was a very different project than most books or my first book, for example. Can I ask, because your education's in linguistics, it's not formally in philosophy. So there must have been a feeling of, let's say, imposter syndrome when you first started writing on this topic. Did you feel blown out of the water when Penguin approached you and said, hey, you're the person we think should write this? Were you like, whoa, that's not expected. That's really cool. It was unexpected and really cool, but I have to say I've always approached my work with stoicism as virtue is kind of a great equalizer. Sometimes people have asked me, oh, you know, you work with these well-known philosophers. Do you ever feel you know, intimidated or imposter syndrome? And my response is that virtue is equally open to everyone, right? We're all working towards virtue. And we know that just because someone is well-known, it doesn't make them any more virtuous than somebody else, right? And I'm not saying that 
the philosophers I work with are not virtuous because I greatly admire them. I mean, all the people in Stoicism, the people I work with through Modern Stoicism, the Stoic Fellowship, there are some incredible people, incredible philosophers. They're wonderful. But I think just having that Stoic idea that, you know, renown isn't a good in itself, that we're all kind of working toward virtue, it kind of evens the playing field a little bit. And, you know, for your listeners as well, there's no reason why you can't be as virtuous as one of the more well-known Stoics, right? So that virtue is open to all. And that I think that's kind of helped me avoid imposter syndrome. Now, do I sometimes question whether I have the necessary skills and expertise? Obviously I do, but I try not to just, I try not to focus on worrying about that as a good Stoic. You know, I try to focus on what I can do, which is improving my knowledge and skills, improving my practice, staying committed and finding more effective ways to communicate as well. So I try to focus on what I can do rather than worrying about, oh, am I not qualified or am I not good enough? That kind of thing. I love that. And I feel like to understand, it seems like you understood that right from the get-go, which I feel like I certainly didn't. I felt very uh, imposter syndrome when I started this podcast, when I started talking about stoicism. I thought, well, I don't have a PhD. Can I even refer to myself as philosophical without a PhD? I mean, it was it, it's, it's admirable that you felt that way going right into it. It suggests you're quite an advanced stoic, Brittany Polat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but yeah, we all just have to do our best. Well, we are talking with Brittany Polat about her new book, Journal Like a Stoic, and we are going to take a quick break to hear from a sponsor, and we will be right back. Stay with us. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform, and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it, and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which, from personal experience, I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often, so stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And we are back with Brittany Polat. Uh, Brittany, what's the benefit of journaling? And what makes stoic journaling distinct or different from journaling that we're all used to? You know, this kind of dear diary, my dad was really lame today. He wasn't cool. My parents don't get me. You know, what's what's different there? What stoic journaling does is it takes these kind of abstract or theoretical concepts that we learn about through the books that we read, for example, or the podcasts we listen to. It takes it from that abstract level to a very concrete level. How do we actually apply it in our lives? How do we internalize these principles and let it change who we are for the better? So I consider journaling a spiritual exercise, which your listeners might be familiar with. This was a term popularized by Pierre Hadot in the ancient Greco-Roman context. And basically, he realized that 
a lot of the writing they were doing, it wasn't working out the theory. It was getting people to change their inner way of looking at things. This inner transformation is what these ancient philosophers were really going for. This is what makes a difference in our lives. It's not having just the knowledge. It's having the knowledge and then transforming it into our own practice. So like other spiritual practices, such as contemplation, meditation, reading, discussion, all of these are types of spiritual practices. Journaling is one type. And in this journal, specifically Stoic journaling, what I'm asking people to do is take an abstract concept like justice, for example, or courage and say, okay, in your life, how can you apply courage? What is one thing that you want to be courageous about? And how can you start doing that today? So it's making it very concrete and real, maybe breaking it down into more accessible steps and just really contextualizing it for your own life. Do you journal yourself? I imagine you must. Yeah, I've done different things over the years. I even consider my blog, my first blog, a type of journaling. I've seen people do journals on social media, for example. It's one way to hold yourself accountable. I've done just writing, copying down quotes, and I've also done personal kind of reflective journaling as well. So I've tried different things over the years. And I tell people, sometimes I get a question, oh, you know, journaling isn't it for me. I've tried it. I don't like it. What am I doing wrong? And I really tell people, you know, there's no one size fits all. Find what works for you. Don't force yourself. If it's not working for you, find a different spiritual exercise that can accomplish something similar. You know, don't feel like you have to slap yourself on the wrist if it's just not something you enjoy. Personalize it for your experience, for your tastes, for your personality. Just find something that works for you. Do you have any advice for determining what the difference is between, say, knowing that this isn't right for you, journaling in general, stoic journaling specifically, and just maybe not wanting to push through some of the initial roadblock that everyone will have if it's journaling for the first time? Everybody's going to feel like, I think, like they suck at it. How do you distinguish between that initial discomfort of learning something new and knowing it's not for you, so to speak? I would say give yourself time, obviously. You know, maybe try the first 30 days. That's long enough to kind of get yourself into a routine and maybe overcome some of the initial hesitation. Go through 30 days and then reassess. Okay, did this work for me? Did I accomplish my goals? What did I get out of it? If you gave it a good faith effort and it still just didn't work for you, at that point, you know, maybe you find something else. But you do have to make sure you gave that good faith effort in the first place, right? You can't just kind of do a half-hearted, oh, you know, I didn't like it. I'm not going to keep going with it. What I do personally is I set aside a block of time every day for some kind of stoic related activity. So I get up in the morning, I have my coffee, and then I have an hour to do something related to philosophy. So whether that's journaling, whether it's reading, whether it's writing, or just some kind of contemplation, whatever it is, I give myself that time. Now, there have been times in the past, for example, when my kids were very small, when I didn't have any time to do that. I didn't even have two minutes. So I would say be patient with yourself and find something that works, but you're going to have to find some kind of time to do it. If you want to make progress, if you want to improve in happiness and your character, you got to find something. So at one point, I recommend this in my Tranquility Parenting book as well. The only time I had to myself was when I was brushing my teeth <laughs> in the morning and in the evening. So I would link my meditation and my review of the day to brushing my teeth. So if that's all you have, then go with that. But just try it. Find something that works with you and your routine. Well, actually, that brings a good question to mind. The idea of imperfect practice of anything, right? That's kind of built into Stoicism. We're all precoptants. We're all working to better ourselves, and we're likely never to be sages. But I think people can get really worked up with themselves in a program, any journaling program, yours or ours or somebody else's. If I miss a day, oh, I messed up. Now I can't, it's not, I can't do it because I've missed a day. But how would you react to people who had that criticism of themselves. They start your 90-day journaling program, and by week three, they have to take two days off because they just feel like they can't do it, or some life gets in the way, and then they really beat themselves up about it. How might you help them feel better about that? What's some advice you might give to that person to stop them from being too tough on themselves? Because it's not fair, right? Right. Well, I would remind everyone that we talk about a stoic practice, right? Not a stoic perfection. We're practicing the virtues. We're practicing at being a better person. So you're not expected to already be perfect. And I would also recommend self-compassion. This is something that I think very few people talk about in the context of stoicism because we tend to talk about our very high standards, right? But high standards, high personal standards can also coexist with self-compassion. They're not exclusive. In fact, 
I would argue that you can have higher standards if you are also compassionate when you sometimes don't meet those standards. So what does self-compassion mean? It means saying, okay, this is my goal, but hey, if I don't meet this goal, it's okay. I forgive myself. I'm going to try again tomorrow. It does not mean giving up, right? It means saying, okay, I understand, you know, there was something going on today. It didn't happen for whatever reason. I'm not going to beat myself up about it. I'll just try again tomorrow. And then you, you tell yourself that every single day. If you notice a pattern where you're kind of avoiding or trying to escape, then maybe you need to be a little bit more strict with yourself. We're not going for, it's not about letting yourself off the hook. It's about compassionately observing that you did your best. And sometimes, you know, we're all human. We're, we're not perfect. We're never going to be perfect. Sometimes we can try our best and it still doesn't have the desired effect. And that's when we are compassionate towards ourselves. I really love the idea that we're having these really high standards, but our standards for compassion are so low that we're beating ourselves up when we don't meet our high standards. I hadn't thought of it that way before. So building compassion into your whole framework of high standards. I love that. Why 90 days? Why not 30 or 120 or some other arbitrary number? Was 90 intentional? Yeah, you know, there is some research showing it takes 90 days to establish a new habit. Um, but I think even just common sense, you know, not too short and not too long. What's what's a good length for people to really get into the groove and see some inner transformation without being, you know, a too huge commitment. So so I think, you know, there's some research and also just being as accessible as possible to people. Oh, I see. So if you said five years of stoic journaling, people might be like, holy shit, that's a big <laughs> commitment. I'm not sure if I want to do that. Might be overboard. <laughs> right. And if you said a week and people might think, well, what am I going to get out of a week? Right. Exactly. You mentioned the tie-in to habit forming. Was any of that based on any study of neuroplasticity or that concept? Um, not directly. You know, the publisher was not citing that research when they came to me, but I think indirectly, yes, all of us today are much more aware of these psychological factors and, you know, there's the neuroscience can inform what we do today. So I think implicitly, yes, that is kind of behind it as well. In general, is your advice when people pick up this book, which I hope every listener will, Journal Like a Stoic, go get it now, pause this, go get the book. Is your advice that they attempt to go the full 90 days in one run? Or is it, hey, this is 90 days of journaling, and if you need to spread that out over four months or five, that's my suspicion is that that's okay based on what you've just said, but I want to make sure. Absolutely. It's okay. Yeah. You might choose doing a couple entries a week, so spacing it out. You could even go once a week if that's what works with your schedule. Like I said, I've been in places in my life before where I just didn't have time. I was responsible for three tiny human beings who were always demanding me to be there. So if that's you, you know, don't feel guilty about it. Do what works for you. We all have different stages in our lives. Um, one thing that I was really aiming for with this book was to be accessible to everyone, university students, people who are retired, you know, wherever you are in your life, there are, I think there are ideas and concepts and prompts that will work for you. And so I always encourage people, just make it work in your life. Whatever you need to do, make it work for you. It's not a wrist slapping program. It's a, a growth program. So however you can grow, however much, however little, just make it happen. And maybe that's the reason the first section of the 90 days is addressing the inner critic. Exactly. So would you mind, if it's okay, would you mind sharing one of these journaling prompts and just to give a sense of what they shape up like and what they ask us to do? Sure. So I will read for you from day 27, keeping things simple. This is one of my favorite quotes from Marcus Aurelius. Think of those things only about which if one should suddenly ask, what do you have now in your thoughts? With perfect openness, you might immediately answer this or that, so that from your words, it should be plain that everything in you is simple and benevolent. So I love this idea of keeping things simple. This is something that I strive to do personally and I struggle with sometimes. So it's this is a very personal prompt for me. But, you know, he describes inner simplicity as thoughts that enrich and enhance your character, which I really like because a lot of influences in our world think about external simplicity, you know, minimalism or just getting rid of activities in your life. And those that's important too, you know, streamlining where your attention goes. But Marcus is talking about inner simplicity, which we don't usually think about, but it's extremely important if we want to focus on what matters most in our lives. So one prompt is just simply, what does inner simplicity mean to you? Describe your mindset when you're most at peace. What are you thinking or not thinking about? Where are you physically? Write down one way you can put more energy into cultivating this simple and benevolent state of mind. 
Oh, I love that. That is actually, by the way, one of my more favorite quotes as well. He speaks to something that isn't just about simplicity, but it's also, hey, you can't just be on the outside all the things you're trying to be. You've got to work on being those things on the inside as well. So that when your grandma says, hey, what are you thinking about? You don't answer "Ah, how much everything sucks. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Sincerity, authenticity. I think we hear a lot about authenticity as, you know, just being true to who you are without reference to your inner principles. But what Stoicism says is that to be authentic, you need to know what kind of person you are. You need to understand human nature. You need to know what's going to make you happy as a human. And so all of this is involved in simplifying our lives and doing what's really going to bring us the most happiness as a human. Right. Not learning buzzwords and focusing on externals, but focusing on the self. I mean, that is, after all, the core of Stoicism, correcting the self. One more question before we take our next break and move into the next section. Do you find prescriptively that there is generally a good amount of time when you can manage it that your journaling practice should take up 15 minutes, 30 minutes? Is there a nice kind of range in there that you find works for a lot of people? Just as general advice, not as a prescription. Yeah, I think between 10 and 15 minutes is a good range to aim for. Any more than that, and it seems like a burden. And I kind of say that based on my practice of yoga and Pilates, some things that I have to really discipline myself to do. No one wants to do three hours of hot yoga, right? Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Right, right. You know, there are some days when I get up and I think, I do not want to do that right now. And so I tell myself, just do 10 minutes, just do 15 minutes. It makes it sound a lot more doable. And I can mentally convince myself to get down in the floor and do 10 or 15 minutes of yoga, even if I really don't want to, even if I feel stressed or crunched for time or whatever. So just from my own personal practice, you know, with trying to to work on self-discipline and things like that, that's what I find is a good time. But again, it depends on your life. You know, if you're not currently employed and you have more time to devote to it, by all means, do 30, 45 minutes, whatever works for you. Again, it's about understanding your own life circumstances and your own personality as well. Great advice. So we are going to take another break to hear from another sponsor, and we'll be back with Brittany Polat in just a few moments. Stay with us. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. And we are back with Brittany Pollat. We've got some listener questions. We're actually going to do four sections in this episode, which I know is not usually what we do with our long-form discussions. But in this case, Brittany's got so much stuff going on (laughs) that I feel like there's no way we can fit it inside of just 45 minutes. So I'll shut up and ask the first question, which comes from listener Tony B. And Tony's asking about the process of writing. He wants to know, what did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about the process? What did you experience during the writing of this latest book, Journal Like a Stoic, and maybe some of your other books as well? The writing process was very compressed for this book. I had a very tight deadline. So it really pushed me to write and get down there every day. And (laughs) whether I felt like writing or not, I had to get busy with it. So um, I did learn a lot about the writing and editing process from it. I highly recommend if you ever want to force yourself to do something quickly, sign a contract that tells you you have to complete it quickly. (laughs) Once you sign your name, (laughs) there is no turning back. You are on the hook to do this. But, you know, it's, it's a wonderful process working with stoicism. And one thing that I found was the longer I spent with the material, with the stoic materials, I was looking through stoic quotes. You know, I was really spending time thinking about how to present this to an audience. The more time I spent with it, the better I felt. And I think this is obviously a reflection of the high quality of, you know, the ancient stoic materials and how it can be a positive influence on your life, on your mindset, all of this. But it was just a great reminder that the more time we're able to give to this, the more we put into it, the more we're going to get out of it. The writing process is always 
challenging. You always feel like, okay, you know, if I if I put it this way, how are people going to understand this? You have to kind of get inside the minds of your potential readers. So it makes you think through things very, very carefully, not just about how you're wording, but about how you're approaching it conceptually in the first place. You know, what kind of concepts are relevant for us today in the 21st century? How do I take Marcus Aurelius, okay, a Roman emperor and his concerns back then and translate them for us today? So even though, you know, I was not translating per se, I did feel in some ways like a translator, like a cultural or philosophical translator. So it was a really interesting process, which it was beneficial for me, and I hope it was beneficial for the readers as well. Can I ask, just because myself and Kai Whiting are in the process of writing a book together, and I have gotten some questions from our community just in general about that process. And I think the idea might be to those who don't write, (laughs) that writing a book is a one-month endeavor, (laughs) that this is something that just happens over a very short period of time. And with your book, because, and I'm talking about Journal Like a Stoic, people might think, oh, it's a 90-day journaling program. It took 90 days for her to write 90 prompts. And this is probably not true. Can I ask you how long it took you to write this book? This book was, it was a very compressed timeline. So I did actually do it in 90 days. Wow. (laughs) Which was... That is wild. It was a challenge, yes. I bet. But my previous book, it was more of a year-long process, which is more, you know, the regular timeline. So with that kind of thing, you're going through the whole process from proposal, right? So you have to think about the concept of the book. You have to do your market research and say, okay, what other books are out there? Why would anyone want to read my book in particular? Does the world need a book on this topic? That kind of thing. So you put together your proposal for your agent and editor, and then you submit it, you wait for feedback, you know, you might get some feedback and have to resubmit it, things like that. And it's it's more like a year-long process. And then after your manuscript is approved, then you have to wait for publication, which could be any amount of time. You know, it seems like it gets longer and longer all the time. So I would definitely say in most cases, producing a book, creating a book is not a short process. This one was a little bit expedited just because of the nature of the project that, you know, the the publisher was very interested in getting it to market quickly. But most of the time, it is much more spread out. Wow, I can't believe you were able to do this in 90 days. That's insane. It means that you came up with the plan and the structure and everything in the same amount of days as you had to write prompts. That's, Brittany, that's wild. (laughs) I I have a whole different level of admiration for you now. Holy wow, that's crazy. (laughs) Thanks. Well, another question from Tony is, because you are also author of the book uh, Tranquility Parenting, he asks, what are some parenting techniques for working with your kids, maybe breathing exercises for the kids, journaling, uh, forcing our kids, he jokes, to take cold showers in an attempt to instill resilience in them. What do you got? Yeah, definitely not cold showers for the kids. Sorry, Tony. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so as far as teaching your kids virtue, I think we need to start with the question, can virtue be taught? And like anything, you can never force someone to learn. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, right? So it all starts with you as the parent and your modeling and your approach to situations. So I always tell parents, your kids are watching you all the time. Even if they act like they're too cool, even if they pretend that they're not listening, you are a point of reference for them as to how they should act in the world, how they should respond to challenges and difficulties. And we can see this very clearly with young children. It happens with older children as well, though. You are kind of a navigation system for them until they're able to develop their own system of values. Or maybe to put it another way, during the process of growing up, they are developing their system of values and you are one of their reference points. Now, of course, as they get older, as they're as they become a teenager and onward, they have other influences as well. School, peers, eventually their workplace, you know, popular culture, this kind of thing. But the parent always retains a position of influence. So we have influence but not control over our kid, which I think is a really important distinction. You know, going back to the dichotomy of control, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, we cannot control what other people do. As parents, however, we do have a position of influence and authority and responsibility towards our kids, more so than pretty much anyone else in the world. But just thinking in terms of not controlling, like I do not control this child's action. I can influence how they act. I can influence how my child responds to the world. And so thinking in terms of influence rather than control was a revelation for me. It really helped me as a parent to overcome a lot of my anxiety about my kids, to overcome some of my guilt as a parent, because a lot of our culture places 
you know, makes parents feel guilty for whatever their kids are doing. If your child doesn't do well in school, for example, the implication is that the parent is not doing something right. So I think just separating out influence from control is a good place to start and then being a role model for your child. So we can't ask our kids to control their emotions, for example, if we're not doing that ourselves. If I'm yelling at my child not to get upset, there's a disconnect there because I'm doing something that I'm asking them not to do. So being a role model and taking responsibility for our own actions, you know, it sounds very obvious, but it's something that outside of stoicism, not many people are talking about. As Stoics, we recognize the power of our own actions. Well, you know, I think it is not spoken about enough within the Stoic community or within most communities at large. I have a person in my family who is a who are parents and they have kids and they're having a they're having a difficult time with one of their children uh, with uh, eating. She's she's eating too much, and they seem not to recognize that they do the same thing and that. Kids watch. And when you, like you said, when you yell at your kid for telling them, you know, for yelling, or if you're yelling at your partner in an argument, that sets a precedent that yelling is, well, okay, maybe yelling's not okay because I'm a kid, but mommy and daddy are doing it. So it must be okay, really. Kids are, I think, a lot smarter and a lot more attentive than perhaps we give them them credit for. And it's so common that we don't pay attention to our own actions, right? It's one of the things that stoicism really helps us to do and journaling helps us to do is to reflect on what kind of example we are leading by, which is the suggestion here, right? We want to lead by example and try to limit physical control as much as we possibly can. Exactly. I also like to think in terms of creating an environment in your household, within your family, building your own family culture. So creating kind of just an atmosphere of respect for other people without all the yelling. You know, I treat you the way that I want to be treated by you. So I think that applies to adults as well as kids, just like you were pointing out. If you are, you know, having petty disagreements with your significant other, then how can you expect your child to to act differently? It all starts with you. So I think setting that example and creating the kind of environment that you want your child to to be in. Mm. Well, I have a question. This question actually comes from me. The Stoics suggest somewhere between, I think most of them say 16 years old in the ancient world. Some of them, I think, went as young as 14. But b- before you should be teaching a child philosophy, they should be somewhere around that age range. But certainly there are ways to build, and we've kind of just gone over some of this, but there are ways to build towards teaching them that eventually. What are some ways, for example, to teach a young child without teaching them about dichotomy of control, for example, about dichotomy of control, some ways to influence that direction of thinking? Right. So I don't use explicit philosophical concepts with any of my children. My oldest is now 10. So she's approaching the the age where she's able to understand things more abstractly. But I don't think it's necessary. You know, ever since they were small, we've been trying to incorporate Stoic ideas into our everyday life. One of the main ways I think we can reach our children is through teachable moments. So, you know, your child comes home from preschool and says, so-and-so pushed me on the playground, right? How do you respond? Again, your child is watching you. Your response is going to influence how your child responds. Do you get upset and say, oh, well, you know, Johnny was bad. He shouldn't have pushed you like that. Or do you take a more gentle approach and say, oh, I'm sorry that happened. What did you do? You know, talking the child through it calmly and rationally and then suggesting a stoic response without obviously saying that it's a stoic response. You know, okay, so Johnny did something he shouldn't have, but it wasn't your fault. That means he hasn't learned how to play nicely. He hasn't learned how to be a good friend. I use that phrase all the time with my kids, especially when they were younger, that this other child just hasn't learned how to be a good friend. So, It's kind of removing the really negative judgment and blame because obviously all children are learning, right? We don't want to label them in a really negative way for our kids to then go and label them. Johnny's a jerk. Mom said you're a jerk, Johnny. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. We want to avoid that. So modeling, again, modeling that behavior in a very calm way and having those, I would call them rational conversations. Now, a lot of people tell me, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, they're not rational. They can't really rationalize in the way that an adult can. Obviously, this is true. However, I can now say after having done this for over five years with my kids. (laughs) With three kids, everybody, please remember that. (laughs) (laughs) They learn how to respond to the world in a rational way. They learn to reason about it because I've been helping them to talk through and think through those scenarios instead of reacting emotionally I've been helping them to take a step back and talk about it in a calm and rational way. 
Now, are they perfect? No. Do they sometimes overreact and you know, get angry about things and frustrated. Of course they do. They still do. But again, these are all opportunities for us to model a more, you know, responsible or a more productive way of dealing with the situation. So I think these teachable moments as a parent are some of our greatest gifts. That's all great. I don't have kids, but so I always feel bad talking about parenting advice and stuff. People ask me for it all the time. And I'm like, I need to have more parents on this show because (laughs) I don't know. All I have are dogs, although there are two of them and they are a handful. But thank you, Brittany. I appreciate all of those insights. We're going to take one last break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about the myriad of projects that Brittany is involved in. If you didn't think there were already enough things going on in Brittany's life, there's more. So stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with Brittany Polat. Again, like I said, we don't usually do a section four, but Brittany really does have a lot of things that she's involved in to the benefit of the entire Stoicism community. Let's start with Stoic Summit 2023, which is, I think, happening in Tampa in April. Is that right? That's right. April 1st in Tampa, Florida, we're having Modern Stoicism's first in-person gathering since before the pandemic. It's been a while, so we're really excited to get everybody together and try to build some of those connections. You know, we've gotten used to doing everything online, which is great in a way. And Stoicon, the the big Stoicon event in the fall will still remain online, so it will be accessible to everyone from around the world. But yeah, we just wanted an opportunity to bring people together to have those face-to-face conversations and, you know, hear in person from the the speakers. Those things that everybody misses. Who, who is this event mostly for? Do you imagine it being mostly for locals and Tampa? Or do you get, you hope, people from all over the country, maybe all over the world come to this? Yeah, I would say it's for everyone in North America. We intentionally named it Stoic Con, oh, sorry, Stoic Summit 2023 North America so that we can have kind of a local feel, but also cosmopolitan. So, you know, if anyone wants to come across the ocean, we welcome, we welcome everybody. But I'm thinking that it will probably draw more people just from the United States, Canada, Mexico, from throughout North America. Okay, cool. And everything we're about to talk about, I'm going to make sure there are links to in the show notes. So forgive me for working through all of these things on Brittany's resume. I mean, oh my goodness, there's so much. She's doing so much. But there will be links to everything in the show notes. So forgive me for not mentioning them, but I will make sure that people can get to them. Next is the Stoic Fellowship. Can you talk about that? Because this is in person, both online and physically in person. These are, I guess, what you guys call Stoa all over the world. These are physical communities where people can, I mean, let's say you live in Parma, Italy. I don't know, maybe there's a Parma Stoa and people can actually connect with online and in person people from their neck of the woods, from their part of the world. Can you talk a little bit about the Stoic Fellowship, which is also a formal nonprofit? That's right. Yeah. Stoic Fellowship has been around for several years now. And basically it just connects different groups. You know, we all have kind of a a longing to be with other people. We all have a wish to connect with others on a local level. So this just kind of formalizes it and says, hey, you know, if you'd like to meet up in Tampa or in Tempe, Arizona, or wherever you happen to be, let's get together. Let's talk about Stoicism. And then the Stoic Fellowship is an umbrella organization that kind of makes it easier for people who are looking for a group to identify one in their area or if they'd like to start a group to provide the resources to start. So I would definitely recommend going to stoicfellowship.com. If you're interested in joining a group, you can search the map and find one in your area. If there isn't one near you, I would strongly encourage you to think about starting one. Like I said, the Stoic Fellowship provides support and resources and a mentor, this kind of thing, for people starting new groups. So they try to make it as easy as possible. We, we realize that it can be difficult to say, oh, you know, who, me? I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm not equipped to do this. But we really provide resources so that you can do it to start a group in your own area. And if you think that's not you, I would recommend picking up Brittany's new book. You may have heard of it. It's called Journal Like a Stoic. And in the first month, you're going to cover that inner critic. And then you'll think you're perfectly settled to, to start your own Stoa locally. <laughs> There's also modern, underneath the Modern Stoicism banner, Stoicon Women. Can you talk about that one? 
That's right. Yeah. So as we were discussing a little bit earlier, stoicism can seem a little bit off-putting to women. So we wanted to just kind of amplify women's voices. This event, we've had it two years now, and it's been very successful, very well received. And again, you know, it's not to say that this is only for women because we do have a lot of men who attend as well. It's open to everybody. So we just want to have a platform where women can come together and see other women right? See that we're not alone in doing this. And again, just maybe showcase things a little bit differently from women's perspective and see what women have to say about issues that are applicable to everyone. And is the next rendition of Stoicon Women coming up soon? Is it this year? Has it already passed? It is around the same time as the regular Stoicon, so October. I believe it's going to take place at the same time this year, still early in the year. So I don't have exact information, but my colleague, Catherine Coramillis, is heading that. So just take a look on the Modern Stoicism webpage, follow Modern Stoicism on social media, and you'll get that information. Okay, great. And maybe we can have your partner and you back to talk about that event ahead of it, because we do have, while 90 or so percent of our listenership is male, we do have a growing segment of women I'm very proud about and happy because it's been hard to make that happen uh, listening to this mm -hmm. program. So I'd love to have you on to talk about that. Absolutely. And then you also have a four-week course on stoicism and love for just, I think this is an insanely low price, <laughs> but it's $25 for a four-week course. It's called Stoicare, and it's about stoicism and love and how to understand and how to implement it both for yourself and in your relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that course? Right. So Stoic Care is the nonprofit that's sponsoring the course, Stoic Love. And yes, this is our beta version. So it is a pretty bargain price for right now for a four-week course. So <laughs> definitely jump on that if you're interested. But yeah, we just want to showcase all the ways that Stoicism can promote love, both loving yourself. You know, again, going back to that inner critic, some of us have had bad experiences in life and we've internalized the criticism of other people or the belittlement that we might have experienced. And so we need to find ways to move past that and stoicism actually provides some excellent tools for learning to accept yourself and love yourself the way you are. Also, we talk about loving other people by showing compassion and then generating goodwill and the, these really positive emotions that the ancient stoics talked about. It's there, it's in the ancient literature, but it just isn't really talked about very much in today's stoic sphere. So we want to really draw that out and give people the opportunity to to learn about it and we also have, you know, things that some spiritual exercises and other things that will help you implement it in your own life, daily quotes, reflection prompts, and things like that. Is this the sort of thing that is a cohort? Do you have other students that you're working with um, as a student yourself? Is it video-led, instructor-led? What does the course shape out like? Right. So it will be cohort, at least for the first iteration, starting February 1st, 2023. After that, we'll see. Um, like I said, it's beta, so we're just going to see, see how it goes. But yeah, every week there's a video lesson provided by me, and it's just kind of guided and structured, similar to Journal Like a Stoic, where you know we want to give you support. We have the ancient text, but let's pull out the relevant parts and talk about it and think about how it's going to be applicable to your life. So it's really just a way of supporting people through something that can be a difficult process and drawing out this other side of stoicism that doesn't receive enough attention. Well, we have been speaking with Brittany Polat, who is just prolific in her writing and her involvement in the Stoic community, as I think you've heard. And I would encourage you, please, to check the show notes of this episode for all the links to all the books that she's written, to all the things she's involved in. And Brittany, is there, if somebody wants to reach out to you directly, do you have a contact form on your website, an email address, some way to get in touch with you and follow up on this episode? Absolutely. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Brittany Pollatt or either one of my websites, Stoicare, stoicare.com or Living in Agreement is my more philosophical, a little bit more theoretical, but still practical website. So any of those places, I'm always happy to hear from people and happy to respond. Well, again, we've been speaking with Brittany Pollatt. Brittany, thank you so much for being here. And I am sure we will have you back on the show in no time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Practical Stoicism. If you haven't already, I would really appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or Podchaser.com. If you've already left a review for this show, thank you. I really appreciate it. Those things mean a lot to me. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care. Thank you.